And um, the rest of you uh, st- remain standing and let's look at 1 John 3 and we're going to start today in verse 16. And this is what we read, verse 16, page 592 in the church Bibles. It says here, one second here, it says here, By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But if anyone has this world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. May the Lord bless the reading of his word. You may be seated. Well, good morning. How is everybody this morning? Great morning, man. I, I love, I love dedicating children to the Lord. It, it, it's such an amazing thing because you never know what is going to result from that simple act of faith on the, on the, uh, part of the parents. You never know. You never know what that child is going to grow up to, to be, what, what, uh, faith she's going to have, what struggles she's going to have to overcome in trusting the Lord, what, what miracle she's going to see before her. It's an amazing thing to do that. And so, uh, man, we take it very seriously here. And, and one of the reasons why a parent would do such a thing to, to be so careful. Landy called me. I, I, it feels like just a, maybe two or three months ago and called me on the phone and said, can we dedicate Harper on this day of June 3rd? And I said, absolutely. You know, I would have cleared something else off the schedule to be able to do that. But the thing that motivated Justin and Landy to put a high priority on that was their love for God. And the, the, the apostle John states in this passage that we just read, and I hope you didn't miss what he was saying. He states in this passage we just read that the central emphasis of the Christian life is love. Now, you might want to brand me Captain Obvious and say, well, duh. But sometimes that's not I think we'd all agree what comes across from people proclaiming to be Christians. But everything about what we believe in the gospel is rooted, it's centered, it's bolted to the concept of love. In fact, John would say in 1 John 3, 8, he'll say that God is love. You want to know what God looks like? Love. That's it. Everything that God does is filtered through love. Well, what about his wrath? Even his wrath is, is uh, filtered through the love he has for his creation and for his own glory. God is love. Amen? So everything is central uh, in the Christian life to love. Everything else about following Christ flows out of this fountain, this reservoir of God's love. So for the past several weeks... We've been talking about, we just finished up a series, we've been talking about the miraculous working of God's love, the, the, literally the way the love of God works towards us and in us in bringing us to salvation. It was God we discovered who, because of love, planned to rescue his elect from the judgment and wrath I just spoke of. It was God who, because of love, made us alive together when we were dead in our trespasses and sins so that we could receive this gift 
free gift of His salvation. It was God who, because of love, did not treat us as our sins deserved. Man, maybe y'all aren't as aware of your sins as I am. Maybe you're not as aware of my sins as I am, but I'm telling you, the God who created the universe did not look on you as your sins deserved. And that alone is the good news of the gospel. Nor did he simply measure us up by our potential, but rather he poured out abundant mercy on us regardless of how deserving or undeserving we were. And it was God who because of love overcame our resistance to Him and He enticed us with His kindness so that we would repent. The Bible says it's the kindness of the Lord that leads us to repentance. And it's God who because of love will preserve us to the very end and who daily enables us to endure faithfully for His glory. And all of these different dimensions of God's love are expressed in one simple word. And that word is grace. Oftentimes, we're guilty, many of us, of making grace a theological or philosophical category. But in truth, the word grace belongs in the dictionary of passion, in the dictionary of emotion, in the dictionary of of true relationship. You see, grace is always extended as an indicator of a love that already exists. You, You follow me? You don't extend grace where there's not love. Love is the prerequisite for grace. Pardon from sin, rescue from the grave are ours, not because God employed a cold theological concept called grace, but because He deeply, sacrificially, eternally loved us. That's why we have grace. Because He loved us and He lavished His grace upon us in response to that love. Jeremiah 31.3 He looks at a sinful, rebellious people, Israel, and he says, I have loved you with an everlasting love. And I have continued my faithfulness to you. Some some people, some uh, translations say, I have drawn you by my loving kindness. He's continued his faithfulness. Has anybody experienced the continued faithfulness of the Lord this week? Have you? Have you seen him come through? But John says here something of which we should really take careful note. First, he celebrates the magnitude of God's love toward us by saying that the way we experience love, he puts it like this, by this we know love. We're aware, we come into the knowledge of love. By this we know love in all its reality and its purity. And the way we do that is by examining the fact that Christ willingly took our place and laid down his life as the punishment for our sins on the cross. If you haven't learned this yet, it's Christianity 101. Jesus was not killed for his own guilt. Jesus was was killed. He was laid on a cross, had nails driven into his hands and feet, hung there to die for my sins, for your sins, for my guilt, for your guilt, not his own. 
There's no clearer picture painted anywhere of what love truly is than the vision of a completely innocent, spotless, innocent man stripped naked, mocked, beaten, and crucified willingly for the same rebels that put him on the cross in the first place. He's sitting there, he's dying, hanging there, naked for all the world to see, spit upon, mocked, cursed, and he says, Father, forgive them. Who? Them! The ones that put him there. For they know not what they do. That's love, folks. That's love, folks. All other images of love. What we just saw, a mother with her child, the love between a husband and his wife, a soldier who dies on some distant battlefield for the for a cause, for the benefit of another, a person who spends their wealth for the benefit of the destitute. All of these are only imperfect types and shadows of the kind of love that God perfectly demonstrated on the cross. Ephesians 5.2 says that Christ loved us and he gave himself up for us. A fragrant offering and a sacrifice to God. But this is not all that John says in this passage we read this morning. He says that knowing love and, and, and by looking at the cross, that's how we know it. He says knowing love by looking at the cross and seeing the kind of love God has given to us. Pay careful attention to what I'm about to say. He says seeing that, knowing love, should have a definite, inescapable effect on us. There's a lot of facts that I know that don't necessarily affect my life that don't necessarily alter the way that I live my life. For example, I know that a bumblebee is not aerodynamically designed to fly at all, but by some mystery of creation, it does. But you know what? I did not wake up this morning in wonder of the flight of a bumblebee. I didn't. In fact, I didn't think about it till just now. Way to not chase rabbits. But here, listen to me. John says this. Clearly, he says that the fact of knowing the love of God should have an inescapable, permanent effect on us. It should result in some fruit blossoming and coming ripe on the fruit on the tree of our life. And if it doesn't, he, he makes this, this statement. He said, Is the love of God even there if there's no effect from knowing the love of God? He says it should have an effect. He says this, what effect should it have? If if, if we know the love of God, we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. Now ladies, you're not left out of that. The Greek word there is adelphoi, which means a sibling group. It doesn't just mean brothers, it means brothers and sisters. And so, so what he's saying is that as an evidence of our love, if we truly have known the love of God, then we will lay down our lives for our brothers and our sisters. Now let that sink in. Let that sink in. What, if that is true, what is that saying about your love 
or your experience of the love of God? What can you point to where you can say, here, I laid down my life. Notice his language. His language, he's saying, Jesus laid down his life for us. And the effect on us should be that we are willing to take up our cross and lay down our lives for others. And so where we ask is the evidence. Now I'm not, I'm not pointing fingers here because there would, there would have to be a mirror in front of me. Where am I laying down my life for others? Where is cross-like sacrifice happening in my life for the glory of God and the benefit of others? And John says, if that's not happening, do you even know the love of God? The highest characterizing mark of believers should be that love exists between us. The highest mark, the the biggest evidence is not where you go, how big and fat your Bible is, how many highlights are scribbled in your Bible. It means nothing if there's no love for the brothers, the sisters. Nothing. Jesus had said, in John thirteen thirty five to his disciples, the world would readily identify them as followers of Christ by what? By the love that they have for one another. This is a recurring theme in Scripture. But what is the first thing that outsiders tend to notice about the church? Do you think it's the love that we have? Do you watch the news? I mean, it's, it, you rarely hear a, a front page cover story in the New York Times that says, says, expose, Christians are loving each other with their, with their lives. Exposed churches are giving of themselves to each other sacrificially. No! You never hear that. Pastor Don, or Dan Kimball, has conducted an informal survey over the years, and he's found that six perceptions that outsiders commonly hold about the church. And I'm certain that you could guess what some of them are. But I'm going to read you all six. First, that the church is an organized religion with a political agenda. First perception that people have about the church is primarily a political identity. Second, the church is judgmental and negative. Third, the church is dominated by males who oppress females. Fourth, the church is homophobic. uh, Fifth, the church arrogantly claims that all religions are wrong. All other religions, rather. The church, and and, uh, sixth, the church is full of fundamentalists who take the whole Bible literally. Now listen, I make no apologies for saying that some religions are false. It would be unkind to to do that. I I make no apologies for saying that this book is absolutely true from cover to cover and there are no errors in it. I make no, no apologies for that. Here's what I think that those perceptions spring from. And notice, by the way, just notice this, that... It it wasn't until the last two things that it talked about comparisons between other religions and and, and our our stance on the Bible. First, it was political, judgmental, oppressive to women, and homophobic. In other words, in all of those things, all those first four things, you could take this statement, the church is unloving. 
That's the statement. That's how they're interpreting the church. And this, listen to me please, this is a huge problem. It's a big problem. Everybody, seriously, this is not some suggestion. I really want you to do this. Everybody look around the room right now. Everybody look around. Everybody look around, look around, look around. Look around the room. Just take notice of your surroundings. Raise your hand if in noticing this room you saw empty seats. Raise your hand. Okay, so pretty much all of you are fairly perceptive. How much you want to bet, how much you want to bet that if the tone of the church, the emphasis of the church, and the biblical rooting of the church were different, there would be fewer of those chairs empty. Am I right? Am I right? I know, I know a lot of you, that's why I love being church here. I know you guys are loving. I'm not beating you up for this. I know that. I'm not, that's not my point at all. My point is, if, if we're, you know, if, if this is the general perception, what would happen if just Northridge Life Church says we are going to murder that perception? We are going to demonstrate the love of God between us and the Father, between us and each other, and between us and the world with every word, with every action, with every belief. We're going to do that. If, if the tone of the, of the, uh, of the church at large is judgmental and homophobic and all those things, then we are going to make sure that our tone is loving, gentle, and kind, even in correction, even in the call to repentance. Listen to me. We get so, you know, on the, on the issue of, say, homosexuality. Uh, of course homosexuality is a sin. But we single things like that out and we get really arrogant and condescending and we say, you're a sinner, you're a sinner, you're a sinner. Guess what? You are too! You absolutely are. And most of us, if we were honest, are, are at least at some point in our life pretty sexually sinful. Man, there were no amens on that. Perhaps it was because of conviction. But we, we get these little pet sins and we, we get these political religious high horses about these pet sins. But Charles Spurgeon, I think I've quoted this before, said this. He says, to share the gospel is simply the act of one beggar telling another beggar where to find food. We are beggars. We're all beggars. We were starving for truth and starving for reality. And God, through His Holy Spirit, awakened us to that food and that reality. And we ate of the living bread and drank of the living water. And now it is our duty not to wear our robes and bang our gavels, but to point to where the food is so that other people can find it too. I'm afraid, folks... That this is a big problem, as I said. Though Christ had said that the two greatest commandments were to love God and to love others, outsiders seem to be perceiving no outflow of love from us, either vertically to God or horizontally to others. Instead, what the world is, is keenly aware of what we're against. Few can tell you what really the biblically the church is for, but they can sure as heck tell you what we're against. 
Because the loudest voices among us are constantly screaming about what we're against. And this should not be the case. See, it's not our stand. Listen, listen, Facebookers. Listen, tweeters. Listen. It is not our stand for what we are for or what we're against in some political issue that's going to help this world. And this is where you say, it's not going to help. It's not the constant finger-wagging, condescending reminder of the sinfulness of the world that's going to lead them out of it. It's not hammering our theological viewpoints that will win this neighborhood surrounding us or this world for Christ's glory. When the watching world watches us, what they need is a representation of a living, incarnate Christ. That word representation is a really cool word. Because if you break it down, it's actually a representation, is actually a re-presentation. To represent Christ. Christ ascended to the Father. He's with the Father. He sent the Holy Spirit to live in us so we can take Jesus anywhere we go. And guess what? It's my job to go out of this place on Sunday afternoon and all the way through Saturday night to Sunday morning to go out into this world and say, Hey, look, this is what Jesus looks like. Do I do it perfectly? Absolutely not. Absolutely not. But in areas I fail, maybe you do great. In areas where you fail, maybe I do great. But we say, this is what Jesus looks like. And you say, well, we can't do that perfect. Of course not. But why do we get this idea that we shouldn't try to do anything we don't do perfectly? Man, the world needs Jesus. They don't need another political lobbying group. They need a representation, a representation of the living, breathing, loving, forgiving Christ. And John doesn't just tell us to love. He actually tells us how to love. Watch this. But if anyone has the world's goods, everyone say, my stuff. Boy, that was the most depressed, called for response. My stuff. Here he goes. John says, if anyone has the world's goods. Now I'm going to ask you a question. Who in here has the world's goods? I'm not asking you if you have a lot of them or a few of them. Who here has the world's goods? Raise your hand. Every hand should be up. Well, you know, I'm only working minimum wage. I don't have this. Listen, it's been said time and time again, so I won't belabor the point. But if you work in America for for minimum wage, you are richer than 85% of the world around you. 85% of the world around you. Who has this world's goods? If anyone has this world's good and sees his brothers in need, watch, but yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? So Paul, let me, let me point this out. John is saying this. He's saying, if you have your stuff, your time, your money, your convenience, your luxury, your whatever, if you have your stuff and you are unwilling to freely give it to those who need it, 
Now, I didn't say who won it. I said to those who need it. He says, what right do you have to say that the love of God even lives in you? Now, listen, I can, you guys say, well, that's kind of harsh, Mark. Yes, it is. But I didn't write it. I didn't write it. I didn't put these words to the paper. This wasn't my notes. I pulled this right out of the holy word of God. And some of you feel convicted right now. And can I tell you a little secret? That's a good thing. It's a great thing. The word of God, the Bible says, is sharper than any two-edged sword. And it cuts us right down to very to the very thoughts and intentions of our heart. Most of us would rather have the word of God be a feather on a stick that tickles us. But God will never, ever surrender the right to take the word and cut us right down to what we're thinking and intending. Never. So don't run from the conviction. Don't get offended by the conviction. Embrace the conviction. The Bible is very clear from God that this, this is what true love always looks like. True love is always made evident by sacrifice. Here he says, if one person has material goods and refuses to share them with his brother or his sister in need, that is a problem and it cannot be ignored. John says that when this happened, the one that, that with the material goods doesn't close his heart. Listen, pay attention to this. He says when the one with the material goods, he says he doesn't close his heart to the other person. It says he closes his heart against the other person. He's not saying that they innocently ignore them or overlook them. He's saying they close their heart against them. Let me help you. That means that those who are unwilling to share what they've been abundantly given, those of us that raise our hands that we have the world's good, they're actually, by their withholding, demonstrating hostility to those who are made in the image of God. This is an offense of the highest order to God. Why? Because we're called in Scripture to imitate Him and to reflect His glory. Most famous Scripture in all of the Bible is what? John 3.16, right? And what do the first few words of that say? For God so loved the world that He gave. God so loved the world that He gave. That love compelled him to give. And never forget, never ever forget that he didn't just give you and I a mere sampling of his wealth. But when he gave us Christ, he emptied the vaults of heaven for our benefit. He bankrupted heaven for our benefit. You see, heaven's wealth isn't measured in gates of pearl or streets of gold or mansions over the hilltop like we have imagined. On the contrary, heaven's wealth is measured by the glory of the Son of God. And God spared none of that glory when He demonstrated His love for us. None of it. Isaiah 53, 3, speaking prophetically 600 years before Jesus of what He was going to do on the cross. It says that He, now keep in mind, this is the Prince of Heaven, robed in glory, worshipped by angels for all eternity. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. 
And as one from whom men, men hide their faces, he was despised. And we esteemed him not. All of the glory of heaven brought in to the level of our collective sin. There is nothing that God has not spent. There's nothing that God has not done for us. Nothing he has not lavished on us to demonstrate his love. So is he not right to expect the same from us? John's conclusion in the passage we read earlier is that if we close our hearts against our brothers and sisters, there is no way that the love of God truly abides in us. So this morning, what's all this about? What's this passion about? This morning you have two opportunities, two opportunities to demonstrate the love of God to those who need such a demonstration the most. You have it. It's right there before you. First, as many of you know, this Thursday night, June 7th, at 6.30, we're going to have our first, hopefully of many of these, but our first outreach with Northridge Elementary. I cannot express to you, I've said it over and over, but I will keep saying it, I can't express to you how amazing it is that the staff of this school right across the street has agreed to, they haven't just reluctantly agreed to, they wanted to, they desired to partner with us as we share the gospel with the families connected to that school. That is miraculous. That's amazing. That doesn't happen. Not only have they said, okay, sure, we're in. This is what they said. When we went over there to visit with them for the first time, they said, we have been praying for someone to step up and do what you're doing. They said that. And the time has arrived for us to be able to step up and do something amazing. So we're going to have this outreach. They've given us carte blanche to preach the gospel to the families that are connected to that school. And we believe that a sovereign God who controls everything has divinely placed us across the street from that school. Amen? They were praying for us to show up, though they didn't even know us. And we were praying for just such an opportunity. Listen, let's not squander what the Lord has done. Come on, guys. I need some help here. Let's not squander what the Lord has done. These opportunities don't fall out of trees. It's a divine miracle that God himself has orchestrated. Our outreach will take place at High Plains Apartments on 16th and Iola. This is government subsidized housing. And a lot of the families in there are in desperate, desperate situations. These are people that simply need to be shown the love of Jesus in practical ways. You may say, oh, well, I'm behind what the church is doing, Mark, but I'm not a preacher. I don't know how to talk to people about God. And listen, I want you to know right now, everybody take a deep breath. Go ahead. Uh, There you go. I can hear you now. I know you're still breathing. You're not panicking yet. I'm not going to ask you to do anything that you can't do. Nothing. And I'm not going to ask you to do anything that I'm not willing to do. So you can't preach, you can't, you can't uh, stand there with a bullhorn and proclaim the gospel good because we don't want you to. Let me ask you this. Raise your hand if you can grill some hot dogs. If you're, ca- if you're capable of doing that. Raise your hand if you're capable of handing out water and chips to some kids. Everybody, okay? Is there anybody here who can run a carnival game and pass out some candy on Thursday night? Raise your hand if you're able to, physically able to do that. 
Can anybody in here have enough personality to just have a, a, a conversation with a hardworking teacher and let her know we're praying for him? Anybody here that can do that? Can you spare a smile and a kind word with an overworked working mom? Anybody? Anybody can do that? One or two of you? Can you pass out some church info cards or a gospel storybook to little kids? Let me help you. You can. You can. You can do it. You've got all the tools you need. You can do it. Don't miss what God is doing. Be a part of it. Here's where the rubber meets the road. Last week we made a presentation. Didn't get a lot of signatures, but I'm believing in you. I'm counting on you this week. We've got a sign-up sheet on the tables in the foyer. Please, as soon as church is over, we're going to ask you to do a few things, but as soon as church is over, make a beeline to those tables and let me know I can count on you Wednesday night. The school is already bringing 15 teachers. We do not want to be outdone by the school. We told we're going to help them to reach their people for Jesus, right? Right? So, so I want to see all of you there Thursday night. Sign up today. Let me know you're coming. Uh, here's the deal about that. Did you know that we can, as the people of God filled with the Holy Spirit, put the enemy on the run in this neighborhood? Did you know that? But not if we're unwilling to sacrifice time, money, convenience, a night of TV or whatever. It's going to have to take sacrifice. Secondly, in a moment, we're going to receive our second quarter missions offering for 2018. We do this every quarter. We have a commitment of about $6,000 each and every quarter in order to keep our missionaries fully funded. I've visited with them all in their homes. I've visited uh, with uh, Scott and Leslie Walt in Austria, with Tony and Carrie Taylor in Guatemala, who will be here with us next week. Um, we have an international sports ministry run by Rance and Stacy Bland called Sport Quest. Been with them when they lived in Belgium. Um, of course, Ragtown Gospel Theater. we got Glenn and Twyla here today. You feeling all right, Glenn? Awesome. Good deal. He had back surgery just recently. And Sin City Ministries with Randy and Tanya Daniel. And we have never once... Listen, let me tell you something. We're a small church. Look around. We're a small church. We have never once, not once, missed our missions commitment, and that is a good thing, great thing. Yeah, go ahead. Y'all did it. Well, today we need to raise approximately $3,500 to meet our goal. Out of this group, we need to raise approximately $3,500. I know we can do it. I know we can. I know we can, but if we're going to do it, it's going to require some real sacrifice on everyone's part. Some of you may need to decide right now that instead of going out and spending 50 or 60 bucks out to eat, you're going to go home and have a salad or a bologna sandwich today so that you can give to the Lord. Some of you uh, may need to, instead of going to Starbucks this week or a movie this week, you're going to skip that so you can give to the Lord. Some of you may want to put off a luxury item that you've been planning to purchase just so you can give to the Lord. Because listen to me carefully, our missionaries are depending on you. They're depending on you. They, uh, we have the Littons here, the Waltz here. Uh, there's others I know that, that have served some time in missions. Michelle Cologne back there that has served some time in the mission. Uh, and they could tell you a story upon story about how the support from home was desperately needed and, and timely when it came in. They're, they're depending on you. Um, we don't have, as Northridge Life Church, just money lying around to make up the lack. Listen to this and let it, let it convict you again. This is what that means. If we as a church don't give to these missionaries, they're going without a paycheck. 
Now, all of you who have jobs, would you like to work under those conditions? Raise your hand. Go ahead. It's all right if you're fine with that. Didn't see any hands go up. For all of us, loving and prioritizing the gospel will always take sacrifice. Remember, love is never truly love until it involves sacrifice. It's never love. Remember also that God has already made the ultimate sacrifice in the ultimate display of love. And don't forget that the Bible teaches over and over and over again that giving, whether you're giving your uh, time to some kids down in the apartment complex or you're digging deep in your purses and wallets to support our missionaries, always carries with it an unbreakable promise. You know what that promise is? That in doing so, you're not giving anything. You're investing. You're laying up treasures in heaven. And the Bible says thieves can't steal them. They don't rust. Moths can't get at them. You are laying up treasures eternally in heaven when you give to the Lord. And that's... A, that's has anybody ever told you, invest in this, it's a 100% guarantee? Of course not. But Jesus does. Jesus promises that. So here's the question. Do you believe it? Do you believe that when Jesus said that, he was telling the truth? John says this. He wrapped up the passage we talked about today. He says this. He says, little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. Let's not be just another talking church. Okay, can we agree on that? Let's not just be another talking church. Listen, you've heard this before, but talk is cheap and love never is. Love is never cheap. Let's demonstrate our love with our cash today and with our time on Thursday night. Now, I've spent a few minutes just kind of wearing myself out trying to make this point to you, but I'm going to defer, I'm going to pass the baton to a much better preacher than myself. I found a video, some of you might have seen, I posted on the church's Facebook page, a video that absolutely rocked my world on this very topic. And so I want to share that with you now. If we could drop the lights and, and pull up that video, that'd be great.